0: During our 50th uh, anniversary year, uh, we have tried to bring people to our church who have a historic connection to us, Uh, people who once served on our staff, either as pastors here or uh, other individuals who are involved in a ministry that we have partnered with over the years. Today and next Sunday as well, we have two young men here who received their call from God into ministry while they were a part of West Highland Baptist Church. It's a particular joy for me to introduce to you my son Peter as our speaker today. If you have any doubts that he is my son, you shouldn't because he's just as good looking as his father. (laughs) We were very concerned about uh, Peter as he entered his teenage years. We wondered about his belief and commitment to to Christ. He is quite an accomplished hockey player and was involved in a double A team in the Ajax Pickering area. And that seemed to become his life for a couple of years. And then one year when we mentioned to him, isn't it time for you to get back, he said, well, I'm not going out this year. I want to be involved with the youth group at our church more. I feel like hockey has taken me away from the things of the Lord. And we recognized then that God was doing a wonderful work of grace in Peter's heart. He uh, has served as an intern uh, both here at West Highland and at James North. Uh, And then at Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, where he had a more extensive internship three years ago, uh, the members of Royal York Baptist Church uh, called him to be their, their pastor. At that time, there were 10 members in the church, and Grace Fellowship Church commissioned Peter and about 25 to 30 of their members to go to help Royal York Baptist Church. Since that point in time, the church has grown. It's become healthy. It's growing and there are upwards of about 100 people worshiping the Lord every Sunday morning. Peter is married to Gracie, she's right over there sitting next to my wife. And um, they have produced a beautiful, perhaps the cutest grandchild you've ever seen in the whole world, her name is Inez. And interestingly, both Peter and Gracie were born in the same town in the Republic of the Philippines many moons ago. So please welcome my son, Peter. Good morning, West Island.
1: It is good to be here with you all and to be able to minister God's word to you. Uh, This morning, I'm going to do something a little different. Usually, I would take one passage and just preach from that passage. But this morning, I'm going to take on a theme. Um, So, we're going to kind of walk you through portions of the Bible. I'm going to ask that you try not to keep up with me with the flipping in your pages. You won't be able to do that. But if you do want to have your uh, finger in three passages, so Psalm 27, 4, Psalm 24, and Revelation 7. Psalm 27, Psalm 24, and Revelation 7. You can have your fingers in those passages. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig right into uh, this message. My dad told me this morning that I only had 40 minutes. Actually, he texted me earlier this week telling me I had only 40 minutes. I went to your website and looked at his sermons. And the last time I saw a 40-minute sermon was about 15 years ago. And he's nowhere as easy on the eyes. So um, double standards, I guess. So <laughs> well, let me, uh, let me pray, and then we will dig into God's Word. Father, we thank you for your grace. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who helps us to understand and to see and behold the wonder of Jesus in your scriptures. And I pray that you would do just that this morning. Help us to behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Stir our hearts in such a way that we would be in awe and enamored with the beauty that we see and we pray this in christ's name amen well i was told that um colossians 2 6-7 to has been the main theme of this year as you've celebrated god's faithfulness to you over the last 50 years it's been a season of thanksgiving god has been good to you and therefore it's appropriate to celebrate and be thankful, to rejoice in what God has done. But there ought to be a word of caution, and that is this. Don't ever live in the past. Be thankful for the past, but live in the present while having a future orientation to the great hope that we have as Christians. And it's this great hope that I want to draw our attention to this morning. And here's why. I hope and pray that despite God being faithful to you as a church for 50 years, you would never lose sight of the ultimate. That you never lose sight of why God has saved you and why you exist as a church because that is what will guide you into the future. And the answer to why God has saved you and why you exist as a church lies within what our ultimate hope is as followers of Jesus. And so I hope for the next 50 years, the next 100 years, West Highland will be consumed with this one thing. Because I think everything else flows from this one thing. We have a sure hope as Christians, but what is that hope? Well, I think the best way to answer that is by answering another question, and that question is this. What is the end for which God created and redeemed a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue? Or, what is the end for which God saved and redeemed the church, the bride of Christ? That's what I want to answer this morning. What is the goal or the telos that God has for his redeemed people. This is an important question. If you listen to our secular politicians, their vision of what our purpose and goal is, is very different than God's purposes for his people. In fact, our political leaders often speak of progress and history as though they're the final determiners for where we're headed. This longing for a human utopia Of course, without God in the picture. But the Bible paints a very different picture. It's not finite kings, emperors, presidents, or prime ministers that are directing history to its final end. It is God, the Lord of creation, the Lord of redemption, and the Lord of history. And he has a plan, and his plan is unfolding, and it will reach its end. And there are hints of this plan throughout the scriptures. For example, when God calls Abram in Genesis 12, he tells Abram that he's going to bless him and make him into a great nation. But he goes even further. He tells Abram that in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the peoples of the earth will experience the blessing and favor of God. And that's why when you come to the New Testament, the emphasis is that God is not just the God of Israel, but he's the God of the nations. And he has sent his son to not just save Israel from their sins, but also the Gentile nations. He is the savior of all people, as the scriptures testify. But what is that end? What does it mean that God is going to bless the nations through Abraham? What's the ultimate reality of that blessing? And that's the question I want to answer this morning. What is the end with which he has saved and established his church, the bride of Christ? What is our ultimate hope? How you answer that question will deeply impact, direct what you give your life to as an individual, but also what you as a church should be devoted to. There are many ways that one could answer this question that would be accurate, but not fully complete. Let me illustrate this. If I asked you, what is the end for which God redeemed his people, and you answered, so that one day he would save us from this fallen world, deliver us from sin and death, and create a new heavens, a new earth, free from corruption and sin, where we will live forever. I would say to you, this is true. It's accurate, but it's not complete. It's lacking one ingredient, the most important ingredient. Or if you were to say, the end for which God redeemed us is so we would be saved and experience resurrection life. Also, again, this would be true, but it's not the complete picture. Yes, history is heading towards resurrection life, but even resurrection life is a means to something beyond it. Something superior to resurrection life. And So I'm going to give my answer to the question, and then I'm going to ground it in the Scriptures. So here's my answer to the question, what is the end or the supreme purpose of God for his redeemed people? What is our ultimate hope as the church of Jesus Christ? Answer, the end for which God has saved a people is that the redeemed peoples of the world would see God and for all eternity enjoy what they see, delight in what they see, worship what they see. That is the end for why God has redeemed a people, that we would see his glory. Theologians have often called this the beatific vision. That is the blessed or happy vision. Now if this, the, the, beat, the beatific vision is, is a foreign idea to you, sadly it's because we as evangelicals have neglected some of our history. For some reason, many tend to think that this is a Roman Catholic idea. Now, Roman Catholicism does often emphasize this, but in my opinion, rightly so, because the Bible emphasizes it, which I'm going to show. God has created and saved the people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, so that the redeemed of God may look upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus and enjoy that glory. It's incredible how much the scriptures draw attention to the role that sight plays in the Christian life. Faith is a gift from God. And as wonderful a gift faith is, faith isn't what we ultimately want. Faith reminds us that we still aren't fully connected to God. The end goal isn't merely to have faith. We long for our faith to be turned to sight. And the scriptures everywhere testify to the centrality of seeing and beholding God. Let me just read for us a few passages to demonstrate this. Uh, 1 John 3, 2, the Apostle John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him, see him as he is. Job 19.26, which I think is an allusion to the resurrection, Job says this, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Hebrews 12.14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a holiness that we as Christians must strive for in order for us to be able to see and behold God. Matthew five eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall have faith in God. It's not what it says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, what makes the incarnation of Jesus so significant is that in the incarnation, the invisible was made visible. And that's why in John 1, one of the things that John articulates is the wonder that in Jesus, they actually beheld God's glory. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One last verse, 1 Corinthians 13:12. for now we see in a mirror dimly. Our seeing is veiled. We don't see clearly. But one day, Paul says, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You see, the scriptures testify that the end game isn't faith, but sight. Seeing God face to face. In fact, I would go so far as to say... That the yearning of the saints in the scriptures is fundamentally a yearning to see and behold God in all his beauty and glory. And it's almost as though there's a yearning for something that once was, but now has been lost. There are two predominant examples of this in the scriptures. Moses is the first example. In Exodus 32, Israel has committed idolatry with the golden calf. And, and in Exodus 33, Moses becomes bold as he intercedes on Israel, on Israel's behalf before God. And God, in his mercy, grants Moses' requests. But as Moses intercedes, he makes another request that almost seems out of left field. He says to God in Exodus 33, 18, Please show me your glory. Let me see your glory, God. Above all things, I want to see your glory. And as you know how the story unfolds, God tells Moses that he cannot see his face, for no man can see the face of God and live. But in his mercy, he tells Moses that he will hide him in the cleft of the rock and allow Moses to see God's back, literally his backside. Now, of course, God doesn't have a backside nor a face. He is spirit. But the anthropomorphic language is meant to convey to us that God will allow Moses to get a glimpse of a portion of God's glory, but he cannot see the fullness of God's glory and live. And we'll soon see why that is. You see, God is so majestic and glorious that even Israel said to Moses in Exodus 20 after the giving of the Ten Commandments that they wanted Moses to speak to them, not God, because they were so terrified at the voice of God, fearful that it would kill them. And that was just hearing the voice of God, let alone beholding the glory of God. One other example of a saint in the Old Testament longing above all else to see the glory or beauty of God. King David in Psalm 27 writes some of the most beautiful words ever penned where he says in verse 4, One thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple." There is one thing that David asks of the Lord, one thing that he seeks after. Now, if you've read the 26 Psalms before Psalm 27, you know that this simply isn't true. David before Psalm 27 has asked many things of the Lord, many good things. He's asked for his protection, provision, and preservation. He's asked for forgiveness. He's asked God to bless Israel. There are multitude, there are multitude of good things that David has already asked of God. So how can he say one thing? One thing have I asked of the Lord. Well, because with this statement... He's not saying that this is the only thing he's ever asked of God, but rather he's conveying, as Michael Allen suggests, that this one thing he asks of God has ultimacy and priority over all other things. This one thing he asks of God has ultimacy and priority over all other things. That if there was only one thing David could request of God, it would be this. To dwell in the house of God. That is, to dwell in the presence of God all the days of his life. And then he says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It's not to work or serve the Lord, but to dwell and to gaze upon David wants, longs to behold the manifold perfections of God. This is his ultimate aim and desire. And this is why he can say things like Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Or Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now we need to ask, why does the Scriptures use the language of seeing? What's so significant about sight? It's because of what seeing means. Gracie and I were in Italy early in September, and I could tell you verbally about our time in Italy on vacation. And you'll enjoy the stories. But we all know that for you to see it and experience it, that would be far superior than simply hearing about our trip to Italy. We also know from our own human experience that the highest form of personal intimacy between humans is face-to-face interaction. The highest form of intimacy and communion one can have with another person is face-to-face. It's great talking over the phone with a friend, but we all know it's so much better face-to-face. When I was uh, pursuing Gracie and we started dating, she was in Ottawa and I was in Hamilton. And we would talk on the phone and, and it was nice. But I would drive to Ottawa from Hamilton every month to go see her. To be face to face. Why? Why, when I had no money, was I willing to drive 10 to 12 hours total once a month? Why didn't we just stick to the phone? Well, one, loved us stupid things. Like, I would leave Ottawa at 12 a.m. and get back to Hamilton at 5 a.m. And in order to stay awake, I would buy a 40-pack of Timbits and eat most of it. Thank God for high metabolism. But why didn't we just stick to the phone? Why did it feel so necessary to see her and be with her? Because I wanted to see her face to face. Because there was an intimacy that I had face to face that I could never have with her over the phone. She's probably squirming right now. See, I wanted to look at her, for goodness sakes. And I wanted to remind her of my dazzling good looks in case some dude from Ottawa tried to snatch her. You see, seeing another, seeing another face-to-face is the highest form of intimacy one can have with another person. And this is why the emphasis in the scriptures about the ultimate goal or hope that we have as followers of Jesus is that one day we will see God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be thinking, really, that's it? That's it? The end for which God has redeemed us is for us to simply look upon his beauty and glory? That doesn't sound all that wonderful. Well, you would only think that if you have a very small view of God. I've never met someone who has spent time in cottage country and has looked up at the night sky on a clear night and seen the wonder of the heavens above and thought, that's it? I've never met anyone. It's such a beautiful, majestic thing to behold, the night sky, that one is even tempted, dare I say, to worship it. It's not surprising that our ancestors, who didn't have electricity, found it very easy to worship the stars. And then we hear David's words. The heavens declare the glory of God. When Gracie and I were in Austria, we stayed in an area where there was a a specific mountain peak just seven minutes away. And it's honestly one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. They called these mountains the Eye of God. Because when you go there, you discover that this range of mountains actually surrounds this beautiful lake. It's truly something to behold. And listen, all we did was look, gaze upon this mountain range, and we were unbelievably full of joy and satisfaction. Just looking at the magnificence and the grandeur of these mountains overwhelmed us with delight. Now, you could spend a lifetime contemplating this mountain range, ascending to the very top, and never fully grasping the wonder of such a majestic thing. And yet, that mountain range is finite in its beauty and splendor, and it's not a person. Whereas God is infinite in beauty and splendor, and he is a person, a living eternal spirit who is beauty and itself and we will for all eternity further ascend into the wonder and beauty of God as C.S. Lewis captures in the last battle in the new narnia further up and further in you see all finite created beauty is meant to lead us to eternal infinite beauty to the beautiful God himself. And when we gaze upon the glory and beauty of God, we'll see a beauty not based upon human standards. We'll see a transcendent beauty that nothing in all of creation can compare. Paul tells us that this glory or this beauty of God has been revealed in the face of Jesus. And in his face, we will see meekness and strength. In his face, we'll see a king and a servant. We'll see power and gentleness. In his face, we'll see a warrior and a nurturing mother. We'll see glory and humility. We'll see a lion and a lamb. We will behold a beauty that transcends the Alps of Europe, the Rockies of Canada. We'll behold a beauty that the rolling hills of Scotland and England can't come close to capturing. If we were able to look up into the night sky and see all the stars and galaxies in one shot, even that would not compare with the beauty that we will behold in the face of Jesus Christ. For he is beauty itself, and all created beauty leads us back to the beautiful. He does not merely create beauty. He is beauty. His beauty will satisfy us for all eternity. We will never be bored, indifferent to such a beauty as his. Our hearts will for all eternity wonder and marvel at this beauty that we'll see and experience in the face of Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, if you've never read it, I cannot more highly urge you to read that sermon. But in his sermon, he talks about our desire for beauty, but not simply to merely look upon it, as wonderful as that is, but to be united to it. He says this, God has given us the morning star, the the sun, already. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, but we want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and the mythologies know all about it. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into, the, into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. I say this with respect. This is why the lover does not merely want to look upon the beloved, but he desires to enter into the beloved. And then we read the words of Holy Scripture in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ, you who have been united to Jesus Christ. Think about this. We have been united to Jesus Christ who is beauty itself. We have been united to the beautiful one. As he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Or as the Apostle Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You and I become partakers of the divine nature of the beautiful God himself. It reminds me of the words in the hymn, Here is Love. We are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man, are intertwined. This is the end for why God has created and redeemed a people. This is our ultimate hope as the church of Jesus Christ. This is the end for which God has chosen a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to dwell in his presence forever and to gaze upon his beauty and forever be satisfied in that beauty. But we need to ask how. How does God actually accomplish this? How does God allow for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to behold the fullness of his glory and beauty, be united to it, and yet not die? It's a fundamental question that the Bible wrestles with. I mentioned earlier that the Old Testament saints yearned for this desire as though they were yearning for something that had been lost. And it was lost. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, what was the ultimate tragedy of their sin? Well, there, there are so many horrifying con- consequences because of their rebellion. We're told that they will now have conflict with nature, that there will be conflict between the sexes, that there will even be conflict with self. They were ashamed and covered themselves. There will be pain and childbearing and even death. But none of these were the ultimate tragedy of Adam and Eve's sin. The ultimate tragedy of Adam and Eve's sin was that they were driven out of the presence of God. From that day forward, no human being could ever enter into the fullness of God's presence to gaze upon his beauty and live. For sin brings death and separates us from a holy God. And the whole story of fallen man Is man attempting to get back to the presence of God, but never being able to do so, for the curse of sin continues to prevail? I mean, this is precisely what you see at Mount Sinai. Israel cannot ascend the mountain, for if they do, they will die, for nothing unclean can touch where God's holiness resides. You see, the shock of Mount Sinai is not that Israel couldn't go up the mountain into the presence of God. The shock is that Moses somehow did. The whole sacrificial system that God put in place for the people of Israel, the tabernacle and the sacrifices, was really meant to accomplish two things. It was the means for which Israel could draw near to the presence of God and behold his glory, but it was still limited. For the blood of goats and lambs didn't have any power to truly take away sin. And it was also meant to actually protect Israel from the presence of God. For if they approached God in an improper fashion, they would be consumed. And this is why the fundamental question of the Old Testament is found in Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? That is the fundamental question of the Old Testament. Who is worthy, who is able to stand in the presence of God and behold God and live? And the answer is verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who is it that has clean hands and a pure heart? Who is it that has not lifted up his soul to that which is false? Have you and I not lifted up our souls to that which is false? Do we have clean hands and a pure heart? No, we do not. There is but only one who can claim this to be true of themselves. It's the king of glory, as Psalm 24 demonstrates. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Come in where? Into the holy place of God. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This King of glory, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to that which is false, this King of glory is none other than our King Jesus, the divine Son of God. And he alone is able to stand as a man in the presence of God and live. For he alone has clean hands and a pure heart. Whereas the writer of Hebrews in 9, chapter 9, verse 24 says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So what has God done? So that we defiled, unclean, impure sinners who reside across the nations... May be able to draw near to the presence of God and behold his glory and live. What has he done? Two passages. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14. The writer of Hebrews says this: But when Christ had offered for all time, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Meaning, His work is complete. His single sacrifice was effective. But not only that, his single sacrifice allowed him to be in the very presence of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And then we're told what his single offering did. For by a single offering, by his sacrifice on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I want you to see that. He has perfected for all time those who are becoming holy. So in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you have been perfected for all time by the blood of Christ while you are being sanctified into that perfection. That's what Christ has done. That's what God has done. He has offered his son as a single sacrifice for sins. Or Revelation 5, 9-10, to 10, John has this glorious vision. There's this question that goes out from the throne room of God, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals? And there is none found worthy, right? But then there is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And when John looks, he does not see a lion. He sees a lamb as though it had been slain. And he goes and he takes the scroll, and all of the heavens break out into song, and this is what they say. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus Christ has been slain, and through his blood, he has ransomed people for God. That is, he has purchased with his blood people for God from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And because of this, this ransomed people have become a kingdom of priests to God. Now, what were the priests allowed to do? they were allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, the very throne room of God. Through the blood of the Lamb, people who have been ransomed are now able to draw near. And one day, this reality will reach its fullness. That is, one day, it will no longer be by faith, but sight. This is what God has done so that people in China, North and South Korea, Kenya, Somalia, Russia, Ukraine, Vietnam, Jamaica, Ireland, Scotland, Hungary, Italy, Spain, and the Philippines, and many others may be granted the greatest gift and pleasure of all the blessed vision of beholding God in all his glory in the face of Jesus. But here is a very important question Who are the ransomed? Who are the ransomed? Turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. John again has this glorious vision. Really, it's this beautiful picture of the end of all things. And there's a people standing before the throne of God, and this is what he sees. After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. Now what should that remind you of? That should remind you of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Right here in Revelation, we are seeing the answer to that question. It is not just Jesus anymore. It is because of Jesus that there is a multitude of people that no one can number that are standing in the very presence of God. They're in the presence of God and before the Lamb. And they are clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And notice, notice this, they are not in dread and terror. They're not like the Israelites, calling for Moses to speak to them instead of God, lest they die. No, no, no. They're in the throne room of God before His presence, and what are they doing? They are worshipping and celebrating and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Here it is. Who are the ransomed? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who are the ransomed of God? Those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now this is all imagery to convey a very powerful truth. The ransomed are those who have washed their robes. Why? Because they realize that their robes are stained with the filth of sin. You only wash your clothes when you know they're dirty. But notice that the ransomed aren't washing their robes with water and soap. No, no. They're washing their robes with the blood of the Lamb. With the blood of the Lamb. Which is strange imagery. All of us know that if we were to put our clothes in a bucket of blood, it wouldn't come out washed or white. But here, this blood does something unique. It washes the stains away and turns their robes white. Now, why are they doing this? Because the ransomed believe that only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse them of their filth, impurity, and sin. It's only the blood of the lamb that can make their robes white as snow. This is who the ransomed are. And my question for you this morning is this, have you, have you washed your robe in the blood of the lamb? For it's only by being washed in the blood of the Lamb that you are able to join this great multitude that no one can number, that are from every nation, tribe, and tongue, in the glory and the wonder of the beatific vision, where for all eternity we will worship the glory and wonder of God and forever be eternally happy in Him. forever before the throne of God, sheltered by his presence. This, friends, is how the story ends. Or you could say it's how the story begins. This is the end for which God has redeemed us. And he has given his own son to accomplish this end. But what does this mean for the here and now? What does this mean for you as a church? Well, one, it means that everything you do as a church, I think, should be governed and directed by this truth. For example, when when you gather as God's people every Sunday to worship God corporately, I hope you come with the purpose of not merely being instructed in God's truth though that's important, but I hope that you come with the desire to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus with the eyes of faith. I don't preach God's word simply to help you understand. I preach God's word because I believe that by the spirit of God, God uses preaching to help us see with the eyes of faith the wonder of God. I hope that your pastoral leadership, Dad, listen up, plans your services with this goal in mind, that you would each and every week behold the wonder of God and find your joy and delight in such wonder. The goal of our evangelization and missions shouldn't be merely seeking to save the lost. We ought to present the gospel in such a way that sinners in need of grace see the wonder and the beauty of Jesus. As Piper has said, missions exist because worship doesn't. And so may God, by his grace, give West Highland another 50 years, another 100 years of pursuing this one thing above all else in this life. May you be a people who long above all else to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our numbness and our indifference to your glory. It is not because there is something lacking in you, but that there is something lacking in us. And we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would fuel in us a longing and a thirst and a hunger, like David, to seek after your glory and your beauty, to gaze upon your beauty, all the days of our lives we pray this in christ's name amen
0: to the one who has saved us loosed us from our sins cleansed us in his precious blood to him be glory in the church and in christ jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen